fellow travellers, and welcome to You Should Have Been There, Podcast 33, with me, Mick Webb. And me, Simon Calder. And we are further apart, I think, than ever. Uh, Not emotionally, of course, but uh, geographically, because for this week's podcast, in which we will be talking about high places, I've come to... Well, one of the most magnificent monuments in all of Britain, um, which I can see peeking out of the window of Room 11 at the Hotel Babylon, which might be sounding quite exotic enough already, but I am delighted to confirm that I am in Blackpool, looking at the top of the tower. Right, high places. Why do we go to such lengths to um, seek them, to go up them and um, to climb them to sometimes suffer quite a lot in order to get to the top of them. I mean, what's so good about high places, Simon? Well, there's exactly two things that are good about them. First of all, there is the um, very uh, practical aspect, which is that it's always been good through human history to get a good idea of what's going on. And the best way to see what is going on in your um, area is, of course, to... Uh, climb to a high place. Um, indeed, uh, I, I haven't been up the uh, tower yet, but from the top, because of course um, the Fylde Peninsula where I am now is as flat as um, I, I chapati. Uh, flat, flat as a chapati, but that would be the the, the correct thing. Um, it's uh, you you can on a good day, and frankly, they always are in Blackpool. Um, you can see for uh, many dozens of miles, and that's that's a great great uh, feeling. But then, of course, you don't necessarily climb high mountains for the view. Um, you will occasionally climb to a high pass, and maybe we'll discuss that uh, in order to get to somewhere else. But you, you climb uh, high high things just to prove that you can. It is a very, very convenient and obvious target for you to, I guess, measure your your your, your fitness, your attitude everything. I suppose that's true. I was nearly late for the recording of this epic podcast because, um, along with my friend Richard, I was actually out cycling and um, we went a little further than um, we'd intended to go and uh, we had to come back via a fairly innocuous looking road, at least on the map, called Hilltop Lane, which I rather stupidly imagined must go along the top of a hill, but not on not on your life. It went right up the side of it to a charming village called Chaldon. Um, but I must say, on the way up, which took us about six minutes uh, to get up this uh, one kilometre climb, we nearly died on the way. <laughs> but the great thing is that many, many high places you can reach um, without your own steam. Um, oddly, I'm reminded of... Um, uh, our ascent of Spain's highest mountain, which is um, Teide on the island of uh, Tenerife, which for a lot of um, early European explorers appeared to be the highest place in the universe. Anyway, you and I decided to um, walk up, but of course every, anybody else can very happily just take the uh, the cable car to the top. And um, of course, in many of the world's great cities, there are wonderful high places with the added bonus of superb views of of city life in all its um, uh, exciting intricacy. Oh, how very true. Uh, And indeed, a lift to take you up them most of the way. Uh, An example being El Palacio Barolo 
in Buenos Aires, which is an absolutely wonderful 1920s I think it was originally built as an office block, but uh, uh, it's 100 metres high. It has the most spectacular view uh, over um, Buenos Aires. But most bizarrely, the whole structure was actually inspired by an Italian poem, Dante's Inferno. No! It's got 22 floors, which um, mirror the 22 cantos of Dante's uh, Inferno. There are all kinds of beautiful um, architectural details which have some kind of reference to this poem, which you won't be surprised to know is an obsession of um, the, the chap who, who commissioned it. There's a light house on top would you believe it's all completely mad and um, i cannot recommend a visit to it too highly ah well i was just as soon as we're allowed to go back to um, argentina i will uh, make that absolutely the top of my list buenos aires by the way the i would say the the capital of south america uh, way ahead of of um, other countries in terms of sheer gusto Gusto and variety as well. I think the fact that it does seem to have called on quite a lot of uh, references and influences from Paris, Madrid, uh, Rome, um, and all sorts of things which you kind of recognise as a European when you go there, which somehow makes it nice. And lots of lovely parks as well. Uh, Well, I'm going to reciprocate with my favourite high place that is um, man-made and that's very straightforward and it's free which is even better and it is the sky garden in one of the uh, newer skyscrapers in the city of London and it's not particularly high but as part of the deal to be allowed to build it they were told um, right you've got to um, allow sightseers in and so you just go online and you book your way in and you've got a magnificent view of a much higher more expensive and actually less gratifying place which is the uh, shard so uh, you can go for that and then if you want the even lower cost lower hassle option um, the oxo tower now has a very 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 fancy um, restaurant at the top um to give you a sense of um, how high the prices are in this high place. Um, the only time I've been there, uh, the uh, uh, sommelier uh, recommended a bottle of wine costing £300. And, well, he would do, wouldn't he? Um, but but the great thing is there is a viewing platform which the public, I believe, can get access to any time that the restaurant is open. You just go up in the lift and you gawk at these people and their 300 pound bottles of wine and you look out the view towards st paul's for free and you ha- what did you have uh, tap water uh, yeah, I, i'm sure i did or I, I think the look of disdain when i pointed at something which only cost 30 quid i think was uh, was, was I, I recall that definitely <laughs> we are intending to um, go further afield for much higher places with our uh, guest are they summiters or summiteers, people who get to the top of things? Um, summiteers, I would say. Well, summiteers. Let's call them summiteers. Anyway, um, uh, climbers. Um, uh, Silas Webb, uh, no relation. Well, yes, he is, actually. Uh, and, um, and Ed Douglas. Um, but first, before we hear from them, Simon, I've got a recording that might bring back feelings of exhaustion and even panic so um before i play it make sure you're sitting comfortably 
This is all just a bit worrying. It's um, quarter past five. Sunset's about half past five. Um, we are still caught on the set, set of steps that we started walking up about an hour ago with absolutely no sign of an end. This must be the longest flight of steps in the world. I, I think uh, we have uh, bitten off perhaps a little more than we can chew, but uh, I'm sure it'll be all right. OK. Do you remember where and when and maybe what time uh, this all happened? Look, well, I, I, of course, this was our um, foolhardy um, search for Vilcabamba, the, the last refuge of the Inca people. And it was close to the start. And just to give people a picture, before we... Um, actually began in earnest our search we had to get really to Machu Picchu and we did it I think the difficult way the easy way uh, relatively speaking is to sign up with an adventure company ideally in the UK in advance or otherwise in Cusco and they will organize equipment they'll possibly find people to carry it for you and to cook meals for you we um, being on a BBC budget had none of that and also some would say that our planning and preparation had not been absolutely top-notch. <laughs> well, I, that that is true. And I should say that you do actually nowadays have to sign up with a, uh, a company to go up. You cannot do the Inca Trail um, on your own as an independent uh, group as we were, us two. And before we set out on what appeared to be an endless uh, set of rock steps... Um, we had passed some um, happy trekkers who were just having their tents put up uh, by their porters while they sipped coca tea. And their guide had told us um, that um, we should be able to um, get to our campsite, which was quite a lot further up uh, in the light, which was um, rather important if we got a move on, uh, except we didn't. And so there we were arriving in Uechapampa. Do you remember that? I do, I'm afraid, and uh, it, 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 um, it makes my blood run cold, which is quite appropriate, given that the, uh, as soon as the sun had, uh, had disappeared, the air suddenly um, froze. That's right, the sweat. It, it froze, didn't it? Just almost solid immediately on us. Yeah, I can't imagine what we were thinking, because apart from anything else, and this was my fault, for which I take full responsibility... We were about to try to put up a tent that we hadn't tried out before or even unpacked. I think it's a sort of dome tent because there's some quite long, um, slightly bent looking poles. Right. Fortunately, there aren't too many of them either. So I've got it down to four. Um, so that means some are missing. Which do you think's the tent bit? We've got a grey and orange bit. I can sort of see in the gloom and the yellow bit. Thread the poles through those sleeve affairs. Have you done one of these then? Well, what a way to start the day. We're, we're looking out um, from one of the very few flat pieces of ground in this part of the Inca Trail down a great ravine to see a sheer face of rock at the end of the valley. Stunning view. Yeah, yes, I'm delighted to be here, but uh, I just couldn't get to sleep at all, at all, which is ridiculous after the amount of exertion we uh, managed to... Put in yesterday. I don't, I don't understand it. Um, I think my really big mistake was actually um, 
chewing too much coca, particularly that last stretch, the last two hours. Oh, yeah. Eating coca leaves like there's no tomorrow. In fact, insomnia is just one of the many side effects of being at high altitude, though it wasn't ideal preparation for day two of the Inca Trail. Looming ahead of us was Dead Woman's Pass, so-called because that's what it's supposed to look like when viewed from the correct angle with the sun in a certain direction, not because of its effects on female hikers. How are you doing? Well, okay, considering how far we've come. Yeah. <laughs> Actually... We passed one of the campsites further up, and I said, thank you for not making us do that yesterday, because I don't think I could have made it up that far. It's a little easier today. I think we're a little more conditioned. Ah, we think we're a little more knackered. <laughs> <laughs> you know, before I started this trip, I'm from Canada, and just never used the word knackered, and so I had to ask some of my travel companions what knackered meant. <laughs> and they told me, and I never really expected that I'd experience it firsthand, though. <laughs> if, you're, if you're from Canada, you can't possibly be knackered because you're used to the great outdoors and, and striding oh. across the Rockies and so on, aren't you? Oh, yeah. But uh, most of the trucks I've been on haven't been straight up. <laughs> Somehow we managed not to be lost in the trail of very sad, weary-looking people who are stumbling up to Dead Woman's Pass, which, when you get here, is a bit jolly bleak. Uh, you can see through the mists peaks rising on either side, and uh, I think there's a certain sense of achievement with reaching 4,200 metres. Hi. How do you feel? Ecstatic. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, as if by magic, the clouds have cleared so we can actually see down into the valley and the great descent that now awaits us. Well, there we are, some of the highs and lows of travel in high places. And I suppose really um, an object lesson in um, how not to go about doing it. And, I mean, I do remember that uh, even cooking our um, meagre measly meal was a serious problem because the um, the stove wouldn't boil because we were at such high altitude and that was not a good way of preparing the freeze-dried mountaineer's meal I think it might have been um was it it wasn't the three bean casserole no please uh, what was it I think it was um, something to do with pasta and uh, claiming some distant relationship to uh, Bolognese, um, but uh, it, it it was absolutely disgusting, partly because of the um, the, the temperature problem, which um, it's uh, yeah, it, it is the curse of those from lower altitudes who stray to higher altitudes. We're just not built for it, and neither is our equipment. Yes, and we certainly should say that uh, we had absolutely no intention, uh, nor did we have the equipment, nor indeed the ability to climb any of the amazing um, jagged peaks that were all around us uh, in in the Andes. Um, uh, And of course, the idea was to uh, go over the passes like uh, Dead Woman's Pass, which are the easiest ways of getting over high ground is that right yes you, you, and, and they are so pleasing so so pleasing i love them you, you've got the excitement of trying to find the pass which in our case can take some time secondly when you do finally reach the actual pass and not one of the false passes that um, that, that, that the terrain can create for you 
you know you are going to be going from one valley into another and you have exactly no idea about what awaits. And uh, suddenly to see this uh, uh, whole new world um, is terrific. And so anybody who's listening to this who perhaps hasn't done sort of much high-ish walking, please just just find somewhere where you can um, enjoy the thrill of going over a pass or two. Well, weirdly, um, the highest point I've ever got to um, under my own steam is in fact not the peak of a mountain but in fact is a pass and in fact it was Dead Woman's Pass on the Inca Trail 4,200 metres so that is actually my personal best but my son Silas has done a lot better he uh, along with a group of uh, colleagues um, managed to scale Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania Um, He was doing a course in tropical medicine in Moshi, the nearest city to the iconic peak of Kilimanjaro. Though to start with, Mount Kilimanjaro, uh, all 19,000 feet or 6,000 metres of it, was not really on his radar. I think probably the first five or six days that I'd been in in Moshi, it had been just cloudy the whole time, so I hadn't even engaged with it being there. And then suddenly we had this beautiful, crystal clear, sunny day. Um, and you're like, whoa, where on earth did that come from? Um, and you can see the top of it, and it's like just this snow-capped peak of this giant. Did you think then, I must climb up this thing? I felt like there was some internal pressure that I was putting on myself to do it mainly because I don't really like heights and I'm also quite scared of altitude like and the idea of what it does to your body that I was like I feel like I have to challenge myself and how did it pan out you can't rush at these things can you I think um, and nor can you go and do it on your own no it's quite a big ordeal in terms of uh sorting it out the the cost of it is is a lot and um you have to have quite a massive team with you i think i ended up going with 12 or 13 of us of people who on the course i was on who went up together but overall our whole team was i think between 40 and 50 people when you have porters chefs guides um so you end up having this huge group um to get to the top um which is obviously really important for the local economy it employs a lot of people um but it takes i mean you can decide you, you, there's different lengths of time to do it in i think at the shortest some people do it in like five six days yeah which i think it has a degree of risk to it because you're not giving yourself much time to acclimatize the altitude so we did it in seven i think some people do it in eight or nine so we were kind of in the middle-ish ground so not kind of not too rushed but not too slow um but uh yeah we i mean we certainly felt the altitude even going going in seven days so i wouldn't have wanted to do it any faster but how many nights did you spend on the mountain about five was it six 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 six. but yeah there's well i mean the last night the, the penultimate night so the summit night isn't really a night because you start off you maybe go to bed at like 6 p.m uh and then you set off at midnight 
So you set off in the pitch black, just kind of this trail of people with head torches on. Um, and it's pretty. It's a pretty weird sight because you can't really see the peak because it's pitch black, but you can just see, yeah, this like snake of little torches going up. And it's, uh, it's strange. And then you get this at like kind of 5 a.m., 6 a.m., dependent on kind of the day that like the weather of the day you go on and we were really lucky we had like an amazingly warm uh day for it you get this daybreak that's like nothing i've ever seen before just like this chink of sunlight comes over like the mountain next to it and just uh just illuminates it all and uh it's pretty it's, that's that was kind of the most spectacular moment of it and you kind of have this brief respite of the kind of how rubbish you're feeling uh, to appreciate that i think Well, as uh, I'm his father, I have uh, insider knowledge of the fact that his vertigo uh, certainly used to be so bad (laughs) that uh, uh, once when myself and uh, my partner Steph took him and his brother uh, to Paris um, with the idea of going up uh, the Eiffel Tower, Silas... um, got an acute attack of, of vertigo um, while we were still standing down at the bottom and queuing to get a ticket and um, had, had, to be, <laughs> had to be led away. Um, anyway, I'm sure he won't mind me mentioning that. And anyway, fair play to him for um, actually managing to get up there, particularly as he was actually doing shifts at the nearest uh, hospital to Kilimanjaro and had actually um, had to treat uh, people with severe mountain sickness who um, either through bad luck or because they pushed it too far had had to be um, rushed down the mountain and um, straight into intensive care. So, I mean, you do have to wonder sometimes, is the achievement of this sort of thing worth the grief? Um, and uh, I know that you have scaled a mighty summit um, and uh, I wondered if you felt it was all worth the bother. I, I felt marvellous about it, partly because I made it to the top. Most people, very sadly, don't. They just run out of time or the weather's too bad. And uh, I was luckily very flexible with my plans. But the funny thing is, if you are at the, uh, what is it, 6,962 metre top of um, Aconcagua, uh, by definition, it's December or January, because that's the climbing season, the southern summer. And at that time, there's nobody on really high peaks in the uh, uh, Himalayas so you know you are the highest person in the world which is just wonderful um, so great if you make it I'm, I'm glad to say I don't know how it feels if you don't what about the views oh the views are terrible I mean it really is an ugly mountain and that's part of the problem with these so-called seven summits um, including Kilimanjaro um, they're, they're not actually um, particularly scenic or anything else. Um, I, I have climbed uh, Mount Kenya, which is exciting because um, it's obviously across the border from Kilimanjaro. But you've got from the top of that, or rather from the Trekkers Peak, there's a couple of higher bits, um, but they let you pretend that you've been to the top. Um, you get the longest view in the world, which is 200 miles to the top of Kilimanjaro and those because the African plains are generally flat. So a qualified um, vote of confidence for the peak of Aconcagua. Yes uh, and I which takes us on these very high places to the highest region in the world um, which is the Himalayas or is it in the sense that is that how it's pronounced well no it's not um, 
you can say Himalaya. Um, the uh, Westerners tend to like putting S's on the end of things. But um, I understand it is more pr- correctly um, pronounced Hi- Himalaya. Um, and I might even have got that wrong. Um, and I, I heard that from uh, Ed Douglas. Now, he has a new book called Himalaya, A Human History. And I've, I've been reading it and enjoying it. And I love particularly this, this line. Mountains have always been places for lowlanders to exercise their imaginations, full of demons or else sublime and adventurous. I've been talking to Ed and he told me there's an awful lot more to the region than just snow-capped peaks. I think one of the um, hallmarks of the Himalaya is their extreme altitude and the impact that that has had on human culture. So um, while the mountains are astonishing and incredible to look at, and as you say, you know, beautiful because of the the snow on them, uh, the significant thing for me in terms of the human story is the extreme altitude. And that adaptation that uh, Tibetan peoples made to, to, to prosper at altitude is a real dividing line uh, in the mountains. So down to about 3,800 meters, um, you know, they're, they're the boss. Um, and then after that, it's kind of people from the Gangetic Plain. That, that for me, is the hallmark of them. Uh, and, of course, um, 3,800 metres for, for people who aren't familiar is, what, um, 12,000 feet. Like so that. a very, very significant alpine um, yes, uh, uh, alpine peak. Yeah, when yes. you meet Tibetan women who have just given birth at 5,000 metres <laughs> and they're just chatting away, you know, you kind of think these people are remarkable. And um, that, that, that obviously, you know, evolution, the way it works you know, is a, is a big part of the deal. Tell me, introduce me to, to the world that lives up there and what we did to them. Well, that very much was my motivation for writing the book because, you know, I went there, I started going there 25 years ago and um, I went there with a head full of ideas about what the place was like and what it would be and what it meant. And those were put in my head by people who looked like me, if you like. And I got there and discovered that um, actually it's a place in its own right. And um, um, we think of it as a wilderness, but it's packed, it's busy. It's like there are tons of really large towns and cities there and they have their own identity. You know, the, the, the city culture of Kathmandu is one of the glories of the human race. And yet nobody, you know, we go there to go see, see Mount Everest. I mean, it's, I mean, frankly, it's another mountain. It just happens to have a, num- a big number at the end of it. Um, how have you? Um, of course, uh, it is that the, what the, the one thing that everybody knows about um, uh, the range is, is Everest. Um, how how, um, how how would you describe your relationship with it? I think it's um, it's it's a remarkable mountain. I mean, it is uh, from some perspectives extremely beautiful. Um, I think it's uh, been. Oh, it's intellectually fascinating because, like, um, it didn't barely had a Nepali name until quite recently. You know? It's just another of the mountains over there type of thing. Um, <laughs> when, when, when it suddenly became deeply valuable, they they rushed to provide one. <laughs> and um, so um, tra- tourism there has been transformational for them. I mean, the the um, the region around Everest is is the wealthiest district in Nepal. I mean, it's quite staggeringly wealthy as a consequence of this tourism. Um, you've made first ascents in the Himalayas. Or, yeah, oh, in the Himalaya, forgive yeah, me. In the Himalaya, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm going to stick with Himalaya. Yeah, yeah. That's all right. But uh, I won't put the S on the end unless it... <laughs> I don't anyway. mind. 
care. Yeah. Um, yes, no, um, I have. I've been, I've been, uh, I'm not a top draw climber, but I, I'm a very passionate climber and I've been on a number of expeditions. It's my hobby. And I've been, I've made first ascents there. It's not actually as difficult as it sounds because there are lots and lots of unclimbed mountains. And a lot of the fun is exploring areas that nobody's been to. There are still, you know, valleys you can walk up where no European has been. And it's a great way to connect to um, ordinary people. You know, the, the Everest trek is a great thing. If you want to see Everest, I, w- I won't discourage you. But these days it's part of the tourism business. And you don't, you know, when I first went 25 years ago, you could hang out with shoppers in their kitchens and they were delighted to see you know they just want first of all they're no longer in their kitchens they've got somebody else to do that (laughs) (laughs) and the other thing is that you know they're too busy you know there are far too many of us for them to 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 pay heed to so um you know for me it's a way to connect to the land that's and nature and the people the climbing side of it is an excuse that's all Um, but it is you know it's spectacular it's fabulous it's a fabulous travel experience that's Ed Douglas, whose new book, Himalaya, A Human History, is published on the 27th of August by Vintage, priced £25. Before we get to the end of this podcast, I just would like to say from my own perspective that uh, although there are lots of difficulties and lots of challenges in um, uh, getting up to high peaks and high cols and high places, you also get, um, uh, I think, um, what... Uh, Ed had called sublime. You get these absolutely incredible uh, experiences, and one that I can remember was in the uh, uh, Cirque de Gavarni, which is a huge rocky amphitheatre which Victor Hugo called a colosseum, a natural colosseum. Um, and uh, we were there uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, do you remember that storm? Uh, there was an electric storm. I mean, an absolutely stunning um, uh, thunderstorm uh, actually uh, lighting up the amphitheatre of this uh, great uh, natural rock circle. And uh, I've got to say, you know, things like that uh, are worth a good climb to get to. Oh, I agree. Um, Honestly, uh, high places are so, so invigorating. And as somebody who spends almost their entire life um, close to sea level, especially here in um, Blackpool, I can't wait for my trip to the top of the tower tomorrow. Well, I look forward to hearing um, uh, what you can actually see from up there. And I think we decided that next week's um, podcast will be about responsible tourism. Yes, what does it mean and how do you do it? Exactly. Who is responsible? Is it us, the tourists? Uh, Is it the tourist authorities? Is it some kind of combination of us and indeed the people whose uh, countries we tour? Anyway, uh, all of that next week. And um, until then, from me, Mick Webb. And me, Simon Calder. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.